A couple of nights ago, I was watching the Penn & Teller show called Fool Us. And I don't know if you've ever watched that show or not, but they have aspiring magicians come in and do a trick in front of Penn and & Teller. And then at the end of it, Penn & Teller tells that particular individual, that magician, whether they were fooled or not. If they were fooled, then that contestant gets a trophy. But the majority of times, Penn & Teller are not fooled. And the reason is they know what to look for. Now, have you ever been fooled or confused by what you see versus what it means? Sometimes there is an alternate explanation than the one that you assume or maybe the one that you have been told over and over again. That's kind of what happens on Palm Sunday and even Easter Sunday to a certain extent. Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday are the bookends to Holy Week. We've been waiting for this during the season of Lent. But by the time we get here and we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and there is a crowd that is praising him saying, Hosanna in the highest, by Friday we wonder what went wrong. But there's some hints in the Palm Sunday event that leads us to understand the disappointment of the crowd by Friday. So today, we're going to see Jesus entering Jerusalem, and the crowd is praising him, waving their palm branches. They are singing Hosanna, which means save us. Yet, by Friday, they're calling for Barabbas. But if you have a trained eye you can see what most people miss. It's sort of like watching that magician. You must look beyond where he or she wants you to look to see what is behind it. And so that's what we're going to do today. Palm Sunday gives to us some hints as to what Jesus is doing during the course of the Passion Week. You can't understand the other days unless you understand Palm Sunday. Now, the whole gospel story has been waiting for this moment that is called Palm Sunday. We've been waiting for the Messiah King to come, as anticipated in the Old Testament. We have been waiting since the angel said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The nation of Israel had been waiting for about a thousand years since the days of Camelot, King David. And they are encouraged by a promise they see unfolding before their very eyes. You see, about 500 years prior, there was a prophet by the name of Zechariah. And Zechariah records in his prophecy that there was going to be one that is going to enter Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. Let me read that for you again, Zechariah 9.9, but I'm also going to add verse 10 because it's a key as to what is happening on Palm Sunday so long ago. Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, riding and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But then it goes on in verse 10. 
And it says this, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken and he will proclaim peace to the nations. He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The river is referring most likely to the Jordan River, and it's another way of saying Jerusalem. So he's going to rule from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. This prophetic poem was written while the people were in exile. And what we find is they have not had a king for about 500 years, but the prophet Zechariah envisions a day when a king is going to come back to Jerusalem. And here is where the enigma of Palm Sunday comes in. What we find taking place is Jesus intentionally enters Jerusalem on a donkey. And this begins to bring back this promise to the minds of those that are watching this happen. We see the mesmerized crowd that has gathered to welcome him into the city and they're waving palm branches in celebration. Finally, the Messiah has come. And what we find is that the people probably did not realize what that entrance into Jerusalem meant, number one, nor did they understand what it would spark in the days ahead. So Jesus enters Jerusalem, and it is during the week of Passover. That is very significant. He did not come into Jerusalem on any old day. He specifically chose to enter Jerusalem during the Passover week. Now, Passover is Israel's feast of liberation, remembering the exodus, that God liberated the Hebrew people from Egypt and brought them into the promised land. Now, if Passover is the celebration of liberation, then the Roman Empire knows that every time Passover comes around, and the people's memories are sparked as to that initial liberation, there could be the potential for revolution. What we find is oppressed people desire to be free, oppressed people desire liberation, oppressed people desire to be able to be themselves. Well, this is going to mean something. And in the Roman world governed by Caesar... And in the various provinces in the Roman Empire, there are governors. And there is a governor by the name of Pontius Pilate. He is the guy that's in charge of Judea. He does not live in Jerusalem. He does not live in Judea. He lives north and to the west in a coastal town called Caesarea. He lives there in one of the Herodian mansions and he has a plush life. But he's always concerned that there are these opposition forces that will arise within his territory. And so every year he travels from Caesarea down to Jerusalem during the week of Passover. What we understand, though, is that he is traveling from the west. He's traveling from the seacoast down to Jerusalem, and what he brings with him is very intimidating. So Pilate sets out on a war horse. He's haughty. He's arrogant. He brings about a thousand soldiers with him. 
He has this big military parade, and he expects people to welcome him as he enters the city. And he's coming into the city with a show of force to intimidate the populace. And this is a nuisance to him. Every year, he has to leave his plush palace. Every year, he has to go down to Jerusalem. Every year, he has to show himself among an inferior people. Well, meanwhile, Jesus is also traveling to Jerusalem. He's coming from the other direction. He's in a city called Jericho. And we remember that city from the Old Testament in the initial conquest of the nation of Israel of the land of Canaan. They took down the city of Jericho. But he is traveling from the east. And while Pontius Pilate is traveling from the west, Jesus is going to travel into the city from the east. And he has a parade too, but he doesn't have soldiers He does not have swords. All that he has is a donkey. And there are some people that have some palm branches, and they're waving them, and they're putting them down on the ground in front of the donkey. Each of these parades has its own symbolism, and it has its own goal as well. Jesus did not come to start a revolution at least not the kind that the people wanted. Jesus is riding on a donkey, but what we're told is it's not a full-grown donkey. It is a colt. So this is a little donkey. And Jesus' feet are probably close to dragging on the ground as he rides this donkey into Jerusalem. And it is an intentional mockery of the military parade that is coming in from the West. Now, the expectations of the people of their Messiah is that he would overthrow the yoke of Rome. But we can see by the way Jesus is entering the city that he has something else in mind rather than raising up an army and overthrowing the government. And we can see it by the way he dies at the hands of this Roman government later in the week, that he is working from a different constitution than the people are expecting. Jesus is coming to save, but how is he going to save? That is the story of the Passion Week. And if you follow his life day by day, beginning on Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, what you'll find is that he has a different way of bringing in the messianic kingdom. He's coming to save, but he's not going to do it like all the other pseudo-messiahs that have come and proclaimed that they are the deliverer. There would be many that would come in to the ranks of the people and say that they will lead a revolution against Rome and they will win. No, not Jesus. Jesus chooses to risk it. Now, we don't have time to go through each day of the week, of the Passion Week, but I want to refer you to a resource. Last year, during this time, I did do a six-week series on each day of the Passion Week. And I want to refer to that on our website. uh, You'll find the entire sermon series called Risk It. 
and uh, you can find it even on the front page. If you look in the footer section there, you can click on the link that says Risk It if you want to follow the activities of Jesus day to day all through the Passion Week. The crowning moment comes when on the cross, Jesus is enthroned as a new kind of king that is setting up a new kind of kingdom. And it stands in contrast to the kingdoms of men. So the contrast is this, what Jesus is coming to bring and what the people are expecting. They want another political deliverer. They want to do what Judas and Peter wanted Jesus to do, and that is raise up arms, raise an army, resist the oppressors. Now, every year during the time of Passover, this little town at that time, relatively speaking, is some of the large cities that we have in our own country, uh, Jerusalem probably had about 70,000 residents, but during the Passover, man, it would swell to a couple hundred thousand, maybe even up to a half a million people. We're not sure, really. These are great crowds of people, and they're everywhere, and they're a mixture of Jewish and Gentile people. I do want to refer to something that happens a few days prior to Jesus' crucifixion. In John chapter 12, we're told something very significant that during the time that Jesus is in Jerusalem, there are some Greeks that seek him out. In John chapter 12, verse 20, it says, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. So Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in, in turn told Jesus. And here's what Jesus replies. So these Gentile individuals, these Greeks, that believed in the God of Israel, they're not Jew Jewish, nor are they uh, converts to Judaism, but they're seeking out Jesus. And here's what Jesus says to these Greeks during the Passover week. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Oh my, the hour has come. This is it. This is what my whole life has been about, to come to this week where I will be glorified. But he says something very strange. He says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So we're entering springtime. Some of you are going to grow your vegetables from seeds. And you're going to place it in the ground and you're going to bury it. And you're going to water it, and you're going to hope that it will spring to new life. It's kind of a, a foreshadowing of resurrection in terms of vegetables. But here, it is resurrection in terms of humanity. And it says, those who love their life will lose it, while those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So Jesus is uh, sounding off this ominous uh, promise that if you're going to follow after me, there's certain consequences. So he says, now has come my time to be glorified. Jesus understands what he is doing will not stay confined 
to the Jewish world, but it's going to reach beyond the borders into the Gentile world, which is the whole world. That's what Zechariah was talking about in chapter 9, verse 10. But he also says something else. In this same chapter, chapter 12, as Jesus goes on, if you jump down to verse 31, it's not only the hour of glorification, it's also the hour of judgment. But what kind of judgment? In verse 30, Jesus says, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. So one is the hour of glorification. The next is the hour of judgment. And he says, I am going to draw all people to myself. In the original language, it can, it's a very intense word. It's almost like David Bentley Hart says in his translation of the New Testament, I will drag all people to myself. But he says, his hour of glorification will accomplish three things. Number one, the crucifixion will judge the world. Number two, the crucifixion will cast out the ruler of this world. And number three, the crucifixion will call the whole world to himself. Now, for over 150 years, people have been wanting this political Messiah. But Jesus is going to come in a different way. And he lays out for them a completely different path. And it's a path that would lead to peace. They don't understand it and they won't accept it. But if you look at Zechariah 9 closely, it says in verse 10 that Jesus, when he comes in, this one riding on a donkey, he will take away the chariot. Zechariah says he will take away the chariot. The chariot is a symbol for war. And what we find is Jesus, as he enters into the city, he stops for a moment. He looks at the city of Jerusalem and he begins to weep. Now this is the second time and the only times that we see in the New Testament Jesus wept. The other time is when his friend, his dear friend Lazarus passed away. But here he's weeping for an entire city. He's weeping for an entire people group. And what we find as he overlooks the city he realizes something. He realizes that what would lead to peace has been hidden from the people and they will not accept it. So what is Jesus offering on Palm Sunday? He's offering a refounding of the world, a revolution of a different kind. In other words, to understand the kingdom Jesus came to bring, we need to see him interacting with that other parade that Pilate is bringing into Jerusalem. Since the days of Cain and Abel, the organizing principle of human society is organized around violence and power. That's the way the world works. The idea of how civilization is organized goes all the way back to Cain and Abel when Cain kills his brother Abel, and the blood cries out from the ground, we're told. 
what we're told is that all through the succeeding generations, there's still this organizing principle of the world that keeps repeating itself. It's still built around violence and power. And what we find is we are conditioned into it. We can't imagine life any other way. And what we find is we accept it the way it is. So next, we have to kind of go to the trial of Jesus. And just a couple of chapters later in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, we see finally that Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate. Pilate is the imperial government. He is ambitious. He's a bit frustrated with his station in life. He's far more ambitious than to be the governor of this far-flung backwater territory. So he doesn't like the fact that he has traveled from Caesarea into Jerusalem, and he's staying in wonderful quarters, and he's probably sleeping, and early in the morning, these Jewish religious leaders bring Jesus to him. He probably doesn't like the fact that he's been drug out of bed over some theological disputes. And he could care less about their theology. All he is concerned about is allegiance to Rome. And so the only thing that he cares about is if these people are claiming that Jesus said he's the king of the Jews, that he clarifies, we already have a king. I'm sorry, no king of the Jews. We already have a king. His name is Caesar. So Pilate is understanding life according to the way it has been conditioned for thousands and thousands of years. It's built on violence and it's built on power. Pilate will not understand the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to bring. And we see this in the interaction. So in John chapter 18, Verse 28, it says, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the place of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? And I love this answer. If he were not a criminal, we would not hand him over to you. Boy, that's specific, isn't it? Just trust us, he's a criminal. Then Pilate goes back inside, verse 33, and he says in questioning Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus, again, like hiding the, the answer, he, he, he says to Pilate, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? In other words, where did you get that? And Pilate says, am I a Jew? I don't know any of your customs. I don't know any of that. So finally Jesus comes out and he reveals the true message. And in verse 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. My kingdom's from another place. So what he is saying to Pilate is that 
you can't understand the kind of kingdom that I came to bring. It's not the kingdom of the pharaohs. It's not the kingdom of the Caesars. Well, Pilate ends up flogging Jesus, and it's great entertainment for the Roman soldiers, and they make a false robe and crown and scepter. They begin to bow down to him and say, Hail to the king! Hail to the king! And this macabre coronation is, in fact, the true coronation of the world's true king. And then you go on into chapter 15, and after he's been flogged, what we find is Jesus, dra- Pilate rather, drags Jesus out in front of the crowd, and he's been whipped, and there's a crown of thorns that's been placed on his head, and he's be- uh, been beaten, and he's bleeding. And then Pilate says this, he says, here's the man, or we might say, behold the man. And that is so profound, don't miss it. When he says, here's the man, it's more than, hey, take a look at this guy. Why don't you just let him go? We've punished him. No, 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 no. Behold the man. With this profound statement, we see the kind of kingdom Jesus came to bring. A kingdom that gives a new kind of humanity, a new kind of identity. Jesus refuses to acknowledge the way the world is. He sees the way the world it was meant to be. Behold, the man is a prophetic announcement that there is another way to be human. And so what we find taking place here as the week goes on is that the organizing principle of the world is no longer violent power and force, but co-suffering, saving, forgiving love. And it's at the cross Jesus refounds the world on the axis of love. Now, what I'm going to say is the most important part of this message. Please do not miss it. Now the crucified and later the risen Christ is in the process of dragging people to himself. And here is the salvation of the world. Salvation is what happens when we stop fighting the gravity of grace and we allow ourselves to be dragged into the orbit of love revolving around Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Salvation is what happens when we stop fighting the gravity of grace and we allow ourselves to be dragged into the orbit of love revolving around Jesus Christ. Jesus came as a new kind of king, And he is the kind of king that will study war no more. He is going to get rid of the weapons of war. And the swords will become plowshares and the spears will become pruning hooks. And he will bring peace to the nations. And his dominion will reign from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And from the time of the poet Zechariah to the time of Jesus. And from the time of Jesus until now, much time has evaporated. And the key question becomes, which parade are you going to walk in? Are you going to walk in the way of Pilate or are you going to walk in the way of Jesus? Now don't answer too quickly. You have to walk through each day of the week before you know the full extent of that call. And to follow the call is to follow the organizing principle of the kingdom of God. You don't have to fight for what God is willing to give. We are drawn into a new way of being, 
Help us, Lord, to live in your kingdom, a kingdom not based on power and violence, but love and forgiveness. We have a choice of which parade to follow. Now remember this, before you can lift up a palm branch, you've got to put down your sword. And so there is, as the psalmist says in Psalm 46, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. It's hidden from most people, really. But there is an occasion when people's eyes open up and they begin to see the world as it can be. So we're going to close our service today with a video. It's a video that's put together for people that resonate with a new kind of kingdom. And I hope that you enjoy it because it brings together people of all different kinds around the world to realize that they choose not to study war no more. Amen.